Hello and welcome to episode 114 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Malakian, U.S. Editor of Waters, and I'm joined by a reddened tan, I guess, if you can call an Englishman that, uh, James Rundle. I was going to say, bronze. Like, yeah. I don't think Englishmen can get bronze done. Uh, the red faces because of something else. <laughs> <laughs> James Rundle, our news editor uh, for Waters here, and the reason why James is nice and tan is he went down to FIA Boca. It's true. Um, just a little aside, while James is down at FIA Boca, I'm trudging through snow, the heel to my boot rips off, Ooh. I have to go and buy a new pair, the, the only store is right in Midtown, so it, the only shoe store that was around was a Skechers, go in there, they don't have boots at Skechers I guess, so I'm just like looking around, I'm like, I just literally grabbed something off of the shelf before I went in to go see this hedge fund because I was like, I had to get something that looked at least a little bit professional. I could get the, the bright orange with the Skecher S on the side, yeah, you know. Like so, a sketchy's going in already. Yeah. So, uh, so James was down at Boca while that was all going down. Beautiful weather? I think uh, at that point I was actually on the beach supping a lovely cocktail. It, mm-hmm. was, uh, it was good. Yeah, watching Chelsea get done in, so that was Yeah, nice. watching, well, yeah, that's said about that. better really, wasn't it? No such thing as a free lunch, Tony. Yes. Exactly. So that's what we're going to talk about today, um, just some of the takeaways from FI Boca. Last week we had um, IBM on just to kind of discuss their blockchain, So uh, and James was down there busy running around just chatting with everybody. So I've been chatting with some of you because I know that this is, is something that me and you would talk about. So I've gone the past three years previously, this is your first time I believe going? was, yeah, yeah, first time in Boca, which... Uh Made me feel very small when you walk around and say everyone with their sort of 10 years at Boca badges and 20 sure, years and sure. everything else. Um, but, yeah. you know, one thing is like, it really is a tech conference, right? It, 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 or it has become that, you know, certainly. It is, yeah. And it's different from something like Cybos, which obviously is a tech conference, but mm-hmm. very narrowly focused. Like, FIA Boca is, is a tech conference, but you still get the great and the good there. So, you know, the people you meet... Um, are the people who actually make decisions, and that's the cool thing about it. Like walking around and just sort of seeing people you you know read about the news, just literally at the table talking to someone about something, bumping into someone you haven't seen for years. Sure, everyone's in the same place. Everyone sort of you know just get stuff done really. But I was speaking to a couple of guys who said um, the regulators love it because they go there and they have their meetings in the morning on the first few days, and they get stuff done in three days that would otherwise take. Eight nine months, ten months to do yeah. just literally that morning. Bada bing, bada boom. Because like it's not like you're trapped down there because you're in a beautiful location, right? Yeah. But there's not a ton to do outside. You know, it's not like Boca's Miami. You know, you gotta go drive to Miami if you want to yeah. go down to Miami. You know, Boca is just it's a sleepy little community, really. It's kind of like a really nice minimum security prison for the sort of four days you're there. Yeah. Really, well, especially what's the hotel that they host the conference at? It's uh, uh, the. the the, like on golf club or yeah, golf like, and tennis club or something. It is pink, like awful, color. right? Oh, I, mean, I, God. Just, I kind of approached it and I was like, oh, "Wow, this is the place where I die." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so everybody just kind of locked in there, and so there were. Uh, James had a couple interesting stories, and I think the most interesting James has to be that apparently the CEO of the DTCC believes that. DTCC is going to disappear with the advent of blockchain. Oh, yeah, that headline has caused me no end of grief. Um, <laughs> even today, literally today, before I even got the door of the DTCC's FinTech Symposium, some uh, one of the PRs came up to me and was like, yeah, nice headline, that was really incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, so that piece was slightly tongue-in-cheek, um, but it was, it was covering what Michael Bodson said. He did have a point. Um, slightly clip based headline, but hey, the man said it. Um, he His point was essentially that 
the DCCC probably isn't going to exist in the form that it is right now in a post-blockchain world. Sure. Um, so you won't have the need, obviously, for a big fault on Water Street that occasionally floods during hurricanes and for the stock certificates. Uh, but their position will be kind of running the network to a certain... being kind of, I guess, yeah, network administrators to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he sort of he said... Uh, you know, he tells everyone who comes to work from that this isn't the company you see now. Sorry, the company you see now isn't the company it's going to be in 11, 12 years' time. Yeah. It's going to be something else. He seemed um, to, it, it seemed to me, because one of his quotes was, you know, you know so he says, where we're, uh, I keep telling everyone who comes to work for me, where we are now is not where we're going to be in 10, 15 years. Right. And then later on, um, what did he say? He goes, uh, we can't have right... Is going to be. He says that this uh, this kind of transformation can be a fifteen year job. Mm-hmm. So it almost kind of sounded like he thinks that. So while he does recognize that DTCC is going to have to evolve, and rather than be an ostrich stick its head in the sand and say we're okay, everything's fine. So they will have to make changes, but it seems like he thinks that this is going to be a much longer process than maybe what I think some more optimists of blockchain technology would yeah. think is going to happen. Yeah, well, I think he was speaking from the DTCC's perspective, right? I mean, his kind of... The DTCC has been smart on this, and they've recognized the potential, I guess, of dispute ledger, and they've decided they want to be at the forefront of it rather than caught up by it. So they're the ones who are going to lead the charge, and they're going to change the industry and change themselves in the process. But his point was that it's the DTCC. It's an industry utility. It has to act for not just the tier one banks with the big tech departments, but also the small little guys as well who use it. So it's not a case of just doing a pilot project and moving to a blockchain. It's moving the entire industry from the way it's done stuff before through to this new distributed ledger world. And that in itself is a huge task, and it takes uh, it takes over a decade to do it. So like any great market structure kind of ambitious project. And uh, if there are any DCCC flax listening, there's your fair shake of the stick. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this, while you were down there, so we're going to talk about cryptocurrencies in a minute, yeah. because that was a major theme, and we're going to, you have a feature coming out on this, uh, coming up soon, but on distributed ledgers and blockchain, what do you, what was your kind of takeaway as far as just a general talk, everybody down there, as far as adoption, maybe as far as new areas of interest, or overblown hype, you know, what, what were you kind of hearing, was there a theme? You know, it's it funny, like, so, like, like I said about Cybos, when I went there in, um, I think it was, well, late last year, in Toronto, that was all anyone was talking about was distributed ledger and blockchain. Yeah. And here I thought it was going to be more of the same because the keynote address was was obviously Blythe Masters and Michael Bodson talking about DLT and that kind of thing. Didn't really hear much about it after that. And actually, when I when I spoke to a lot of the people who were there, and I started talking about DLT, they were like, "Yeah, we're looking at it. You know, we've got some people who are sort of seeing how it complies to us. But really, what we're actually interested in is the digital currency side, yeah. which is such a change from a couple of years ago when." People would say, don't worry about Bitcoin, worry about the blockchain. That's the interesting part. Really, it's this interesting ebb and flow, right, that we've well, been exactly. seeing where it's like, no, we care about this. No, actually, this is more interesting. No, this is and more this interesting. Is kind of and I guess that's, that's the character of the, the people who are there, right? I mean, the guys who are there are the people whose job it is to make money, mm-hmm. not necessarily the guys who think about how to architect the grand infrastructure of the future, necessarily. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was really actually quite startling to see how few people seem to... Maybe not, they, it's not that they didn't care about blockchain, but it's just they didn't really seem interested in talking about it. They're more interested in talking about what... Bitcoin or the actual token side rather than the protocol side could do for them. So. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that and your feature it's going to be coming up. Um, prop trading shops, proprietary trading mm. shops are showing greater interest um, in this market. You know, DRW Trading, which we profiled, yeah. uh, has has been getting to its name out there through this. 
what did you kind of hear while you were down there? What, why is there now this newfound enthusiasm for well, uh, Quite frankly, I think because there was a lot of money to be made in it last year. Yeah. Um, but the prop shops have, yeah, been by far and away the, the hardest charging um, part of what you would call institutional trading, I guess, getting involved in it. Um, you know, all the vendors I spoke to who are involved in this, so trading technologies, people at Deep Systems and that kind of thing, all said that the prop guys, especially the Chicago prop guys, are all just pressing them day in, day out, saying, give us some tools, give us some technology. Yeah. In fact, Trading Technologies went live with its um, link to GDAX last week, but yeah. Rick Lane told me that they'd actually had a bunch of prop shops on it live before that because they couldn't wait. They'd want to start trading it. Um, yeah. And it's really interesting. So I've traditionally covered things like this from a sell side perspective, I guess. So I was a sell side editor in London before and uh, worked for Risk before this. And so my my contact space is with the FCMs, the Futures Commission Merchants, and they have such a radically different approach to cryptocurrency, um, to what the exchanges have, and in turn to what the prop shops seem to have. And I guess this is most evident when we start talking about the futures. Um, so they were rolled out obviously in December, the CME and the CFE both rolled out their futures, and uh, the FCMs were up in arms about it. They were saying we weren't consulted about it, the exchange is self-certified, you know, we're concerned about the risk to clearing houses, and all this kind of deep systemic kind of talk about it. Um, so it was sat in front of um, three guys from, from the principal trading group at FIA, and we said, you know, is it sensible that the exchanges are rolling out contracts on this when there are still huge gaps in market structure, when there are things like technical glitches happening and the exchange going down for six hours and that kind of thing, and, mm-hmm. and this didn't care, really. I mean, like, yeah. The guys were just like, look, we're principal trading shops, at the end of the day, we like new products, and it gives us exposure, it allows us to trade things, and the futures allow us, like, for the first time to really short this market as well, and... Uh, to kind of hedge and risk manage ourselves. Um, there was none of the kind of concern that the FCMs had about whether the default fund should be separate, the clearinghouse. And, and the guy said, actually, those were valid concerns um, if you're a bank and if sure. you're a dealer and if you're taking on this risk of being inside of it for them. They were just like, this great. You know, we think it works really quickly. No one can say it was rolled out recklessly because it's worked so far. Um, and actually, there was sort of... It was really interesting talking to a few of them, um, and you'll read about this in the future I have coming out, but a lot of them said... it. The wave of interest over crypto and the way things have kind of evolved over the last, I guess, year or so um, since Bitcoin shut up and all that interest took place. They said, a lot of people said it felt like the early days of electronic trading, where um, the electronic venues are set up after NASDAQ and you had Ireland DCN and things like that, and people sort of connecting to them and trying to figure out how it works and where the gaps were and where things weren't. Um, a lot of them actually seem genuinely excited about it, because um, a lot of these guys are kind of, at the end of the day, their job is to to use that kind of sort of spotty market structure to make money, right? Yeah, uh, sure. Guys. Um, and well, also them, the fool's money that's being thrown into it and you know, investing things like Dogecoin and stuff like that. It's just well, so yeah. much stupid money that's flowing into this sector right now. Well, this was an interesting thing as well. And, and a lot of people said that uh, unlike traditional asset classes like equities or you know, listed options and that kind of thing, um, the retail segment of cryptocurrency is actually a lot more advanced than you'd find in other asset classes, purely because, you know, as the old saying used to go, you needed a computer science degree to trade Bitcoin. That's mm. not the case anymore, but um, the the retail segment is a lot more technologically literate, they're more comfortable with the way things go. And actually, um, a lot of the guys from the principal trading shops raised the point that this is actually a really good thing for the market because it introduces a whole new segment of the population that may have not otherwise been interested in capital markets mm-hmm. to kind of the benefits of how these work for the economy and the society as a whole, um, how proprietary trading shops kind of make markets and that kind of thing, and, and essentially teaches a whole range of people across the world, not just obviously in the US or, or Europe, but it's huge in age back as well, um, 
about kind of you know in how Japan they actually work. have uh, pop bands that uh, sing about yes they actually do don't they yeah. I'm pretty sure there's a J-pop band that will sing yeah. about pretty much anything but um, <laughs> yeah their the, the points were just like kind of they're fun exciting for not just from uh, from something actually happening in the future space where it's been a bit dry for the last few years but also from the kind of uh, the talents it can possibly bring into the industry you know a lot of them say that over the last few years, it's not been a good time to be a proprietary trader. A lot of shops closed down, all the, sure. especially the HFT space. A lot of consolidation. Space. Yeah, and a lot of the guys I spoke to are actually responsible for all the consolidation. Sure. So, uh, but you know, one of them was saying that, uh, and it was Rob Creever from Geneva was just saying, you know, he used to think a lot about how there was just wasn't anything coming into it, but now that's completely changed with crypto. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. So you have blockchain, Bitcoin. Those are big ones. Mm-hmm. AI, machine learning, what was uh, anything interesting takeaway on that front? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of why it's become a tech conference, really, because all of the conversations I had, they were either about crypto or they are about artificial intelligence or they are about machine learning. Uh, a few like regulatory bits we'll get into in a bit, but mm. every vendor I spoke to was using machine learning in some variety. Some more hesitant than others, but, um, you know, I was speaking to people who are doing natural language processing, like GreenKey and that kind of thing, sure. who actually gave me a demonstration of their uh, um, product where he was sort of having a conversation on the phone with me and it was able to distinguish between when we were talking about the football and when we were talking about the market and that kind of thing. I would love to have that for uh, transcribing uh, tool. That's what I said to him and he kind of laughed uncomfortably as if I was trying to push him for free copy, which, hey, by the way, you know. There's nothing I hate more than transcribing, so. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And um, a bunch of other guys as well. And a lot of people are actually excited about um, the potential it has, I guess, really, and the kind of this, this weird nexus that is now forming between fintech and market structure and regulation and bringing all of these things together to actually make it work in a number of ways. So they're looking at compliance projects using AI and NLP and machine learning, but also looking at how it can be extended out to kind of make their workflows better. And so not just using um, uh, NLP for surveillance communications, or that's a big part of it in compliance, but then also mm. thinking, well, you know, we've got this whole treasure trove of data. Why can't that then link together and generate trade ideas for our salespeople to pitch to clients and that kind of thing? You know, yeah. really interesting kind of next step stuff that people were sort of talking about. But yeah, um, if you think about Boca as a kind of place that's generally been about regulation, it's generally been about arcane futures topics, I guess, in the past, um, depending on how deep you go into it. This is all very much pure play tech all the way. Yeah. So, yeah. And well, it's an interesting crowd because, like you said, SIFMA is going to attract a different kind of person from a bank and asset manager, you know, it will be more technology operations focused. Um, Down there you have much more, many more front office guys in addition to the vendors that are kind of just swarming around trying to get, you know, meetings with with some of these guys. And a lot of strategy guys who also think not just in terms of how cool the tech is, like you get a cyborg, so you get SIFMA, but um, also what this means for the long term kind of future of the company as well. The one other thing that I was happy to hear about was... um, uh, there was some conversation, I guess, down there about desktop app interoperability. Yes, uh, the Open Open Fin project, is it? Yep, uh, uh, Financial it? Desktop Connectivity Huge. and Collaboration Consortium. Like, I mean, almost everyone I spoke to mentioned it. They all, everyone was very excited about it, actually. And, um, you know, it's funny, from nearly falling asleep the first time you pitched it to me, um, <laughs> to actually going down there and having so many people talk about it of their own volition. Like, I didn't even bring it up half the time. They just said, oh, you know, you've heard about this thing that Open Fin's doing with this big consortium and everything. Um they're all very excited about it. They think it's actually going to work. You know, if they can keep the momentum going, the fact they've got so many people involved already and they keep adding more. Yeah. Um, and everyone's doing a discrete part of it as well. So there's various people doing the voice part, there's various people doing the text part, you know, some people doing the interchange, some people doing the APIs, all the rest of it. Yeah. 
And they actually think it generally is a shot at sort of coming off and being a hugely beneficial tool. Well, think about, so the, the theme of as a conference like FIA Boca becomes more and more tech, that's because people are becoming more tech savvy. As you mm-hmm. have to know, you have to have programming skills. you got to start to have an understanding of how AI just in general works. You know, these, these tools that you're using on every day, we are it, slowly, but this industry is moving toward more technologically savvy um, products, hence why you're starting to see more and more people try and get into the fintech game, yeah. create their own startups for specific uses because, you know, because of cloud-based technologies and the ability to deliver your platform over over the internet, you know, that's creating new opportunities, new challenges. So I think that kind of, that that's why you kind of see that interest in desktop app interoperability that right now it's almost overwhelming, too much technology. Yeah. We want to figure out a way to at least streamline the process for getting to try out, test, and and install new things, or just say nope, that that really didn't fit our needs and get rid of it. So I guess that that's well, uh, a theme there. Exactly, yeah. And I think the most interesting thing, actually, from a fintech perspective, is I I don't think I actually heard the word fintech once when I was there, apart from like on program guides and stuff. For most people there, fintech was just the industry and what it mm-hmm. is now and that kind of thing. So. It's not a case of kind of, oh, look at this cool new technology. It's like, no, this is here. Like, how do we make it work for us now? It's actually just part of the fabric of the financial industry. And so. then the other, I guess, big story to come out, uh, probably the, the the biggest story was, and it's pretty interesting here, contends talk about this, but the CFTC yeah. has some things to say about the EC clearing proposals. It does. It's, uh, it's not very happy about them, um, <laughs> to say the least. So um, if anybody... Uh, like me, follows kind of uh, clearing regulations and market structure stuff. You might remember from last year, the EC had a list of proposals about the headline thing was they might force some clearing houses to relocate to the Eurozone if they're systemically important. But the ancillary part of that was that the EC wants to enhance European oversight of, of clearing houses generally that it considers systemically important. And um, I, from what I understood at the time, this didn't include the United States because they had an agreement with them. Mm-hmm. Um, which was signed in 2016, I think, or 2015, the Path Forward Agreement. Uh, how wrong was I? <laughs> so speaking to a couple of like senior CFTC guys at the conference, and they were just livid about it. They were saying, you know, we spoke to the European Commission about this. Um, we asked them, you know, we know this is targeted at LCH pretty much, and it's a Brexit thing. And the guy's like, yeah. They said, right, so our agreement still stands, right? And apparently the EC guys here went, no, it doesn't stand at all. We're going to have to renegotiate it. This agreement took like four years to put in place the first time, and it was a nightmare for everyone involved. Um, it took several rotations of senior regulators at the top to actually get done. So the CFTC was pretty furious about the fact that they might have to go back to the drawing board with the EC, and they said, you know, well, it was their objective to come and plant the story, I think, pretty much that the EC was reneging on its agreements, and this diplomatically, this is a problem, and... We didn't really think much of it, really. Um, I was going to write the story anyway, but then Quintens came on stage and gave this kind of stone-cold fire and fury delivery about how the EC was... Well, it's a great quote. A so yeah. this is uh, Brian Quintens speaking at FA Boca. Quote, The EC's proposal is unacceptable to the CFTC. It is unacceptable to the United States Treasury Department. It is unacceptable to senior United States senators. And it is unacceptable to the White House itself. The entire United States government is steadfast in its opposition to the EC's proposal. It's amazing. So during contends for president. Well, I mean, <laughs> this is the second angle. It might be the case, but um, you know, when you go to a conference and it's a CFTC keynote or an FCA keynote or anything, not everyone just switches off because they know it's going to be sent out by email yeah. at the end of the speech anyway. 
Um, so there was a bunch of people just sitting there, tapping on their phones, waiting for the next panel. Um, and then he said that, and like I looked around the room, and literally everyone just kind of like sat back in their chairs and put their phones down, was kind of looking a bit shell shocked about it, really. And he mm-hmm. carried on after that in the same kind of vein, talking about you know how if the EC wants to close itself off, it'll he'll help them do that and that kind of thing. But if it wants to be a proper partner, he'll help them do that as well. And then he kind of went off stage, and there was like kind of one or two half-hearted attempts at clapping, but everyone was just quiet yeah. in the room afterwards, like, wow. Well, even Benham, you know, the Democrat, you know, commissioner mm. on CFTC, you know, not as forceful, but, you know, was very against it, and Giancarlo, obviously. Well, it was kind of ratcheting up from, like, so Giancarlo yeah. went first, I think, and then he was quite measured and quite sort of, you know, CFTC chairmanly about it. Mm-hmm. And then Benham came on with a little bit more kind of... Um, bit more vim i guess yeah a bit more of a kick to a step and then just you know attack dog quintens came up and poor like david pearson from the european commission after that from dg fism was the next guy on a panel yeah and apparently I, I had to run out to write the story because i was just like well i've got to get this far now um and apparently came on stage and went yeah so i guess i'm the bad guy here yeah. <laughs> so, well, i also had an interesting things like I have thick skin and make a lot of money, so no big deal. It's yeah, like yeah. A, I think kind I, of an I, asshole response. <laughs> it went down quite well from what I understand of the audience. Like I mm-hmm. took a lot of the tension out of the room a little bit. But um, yeah, if you've ever met David Pearson or spoken to him, he's, he's uh, not someone to be trifled with. So <laughs> apparently got a bit fiery on that panel as well, like snapping back and forth. And he was quite sort of uh, indignant, which also ties into then. So in the course of reporting the story, I spoke to a couple of guys I know at the European Commission. Um, and they were just like, we don't know where this is coming from, from the CFTC. Like, we've told them that the agreement still absolutely is in force, and that's not going to change. Yeah. In fact, we're patterning what we're doing with CCP supervision off the American model. So, like, what the hell are they talking about? That kind of thing. Um, obviously, the on-the-record comment was very much more asinine, saying, you know, we appreciate the United States and want to work with them. But, yeah, in private, they were just kind of slightly horrified and uh, thought the U.S. was kind of really blowing out of proportion. So... It was suggested to me that there are a few people who want to burnish their political credentials um, and attacking the European Commission is a relatively easy way to do that, so we'll see. I've got a column coming out about this very topic, so you can read that next week as well. Next week. Mm-hmm. All right. So, any other takeaways um, from uh, FIA Boca? Um, I guess it's a really nice place with a good beach and should probably get sent down there more. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, next year, you know, it's... Yeah. Uh, you know, I was I was benevolent this year and said, James, why don't you go, you know, but, uh, you know, next year, you know. It's always one of those things. I've been covering the space for many, many years and always from, well, predominantly from London. And it was always one of those conferences I was really jealous that the US reporters got to go to, actually, because mm-hmm. there's nothing really of its equivalent in uh, in Europe, I don't okay. know, really. But, uh, yeah, it was a good experience, so. Very good. Um, I guess, you know, the other interesting thing maybe to talk about for us is uh, this Facebook Cambridge Analytica yeah, um, and just about data security, data privacy, how your data is used. Well, that was another topic of conversation at Boca was GDPR actually, and people sort of mm-hmm. getting to grips with that and what is and what's not. So I guess it ties into how people are using our data now, or how you use your data, I guess, really to an yeah. extent. So I mean, you know, a lot of uproar about the Cambridge Analytica thing. Um, obviously, if they did nick the data, then that's bad, but. I think really the real question should be people would ask themselves saying, if I'm using a platform like Facebook, am I aware of how much my data I'm giving out to people? Like, yes. how much they can. I think there's actually a really creepy feature on Facebook where you can go to advertising preferences or something. Mm-hmm. And it's got like um, a dashboard of what Facebook thinks it knows about you. Yeah. In terms of your likes, your dislikes, but then also your religion, your political alignment, your kind of, you know, everything else. It's really yeah. quite sketchy. Go into your settings and your advertising preferences, you'll find it. Um, yeah, I did it once 
but I only ever really comment on because I don't anytime something pro because you scream into a vacuum there. So anything like when I'm like kudos on the Republican side, it's just like people, rah, 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 and so I just I don't bother with it. Some so it th- thinks that I'm <laughs> I'm liberal Democrat leaning. I'm like no, yeah, I'm not. not. It's <laughs> <laughs> wrong. I thought that was a moderate moderate Republican as well, but uh, yeah. Again, not quite so much again because I pretty much don't post political stuff. Just stuff that I find funny. Yeah. Occasionally, yeah, sure. like today, the story about how um, the color of UK passports was such an issue during Brexit, and now they've uh, <laughs> they've had to admit that after Brexit, the new British blue passports will be produced by a French company, nice. um, not a UK company, which lost the bid. Yeah. Um, not bad. It was good, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like looking at this, I mean, I, I look at my brother and. Um, and people sort of my age uh, and older are a bit more guarded about what they put out there on social sure. media. My brother is to an extent as well. He's an actor, so he's aware of how much that can backfire and that kind of thing. But he's still like constantly posting on his Instagram story or Snapchat with his friends and um, Facebook. He's doing stuff all the time on it because it's all closed off. And I'm just you know, looking at it thinking, it's a lot of personal information, including photos of like your streets and sort of you know who you're hanging out with and where you are at any given time and that kind of thing. For them, it's kind of like a natural exchange, and they didn't even think about it. Yeah. So I don't like um, my privacy settings are locked entirely down on Facebook. Like no one can view my stuff unless I allow them to. Mm. Um, and that's pretty much the same with most social media, apart from Twitter, which I use for work. So um, I'm very hesitant about giving that kind of control away and that kind of information away. But for my brother's generation, and he's uh, like I think six or seven years younger than me. Um, it's just something they do, and they don't really think about it. Like, they want access to Vine or to Instagram or anything. So, yeah, sure, you know, like, look at my friend's contacts, look at my address, here's my date of birth, here's, you know, kind of my mother's I want all my things to interact, so if I put something up on Instagram, I'll go to my Twitter, I'll go to my Facebook. I'll allow it like access, that. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I'll never curate it, go back afterwards and find out what Zynga apps actually have access to everything I post on there. Yeah. Or even basic stuff like password reminders, you mm. know, sort of... Um, you never something like you know what's your mother's maiden name because then that's easy like information that can trace you back for there you put something sure. innocuous in there, um, and I think what this Cambridge Analytica thing is really highlighting or should really highlight for a lot of people is, yeah okay wh- whatever happened with that company was a bad thing, it's your own damn fault for putting that information out on the web in the first place mm. that you can be so accurately profiled and manipulated you know yeah. um, as we saw what happened during the election you have to start to ask yourself serious conversations of how much of of my own privacy am I willing to give away mm. for entertainment and convenience. Right. Increasingly, people are, they they get pissed off when they lose someone's privacy, but it's like, you don't get to choose. It's, it's one or the other. This is a black and white thing. I want the enjoyment of Facebook and the community or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever gets you off on that. That's what I want. You don't get to say, okay, well, I don't ever want any of my personal information to get away when I don't want it to get away. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. These companies exist, and the reason why they're successful, the reason why they're able to make such huge technology investments to make the experience better, is they're selling you. That you are the cut. Your information is the reason why that exists. Facebook exists. Yes, it's a it's side product. Is you can share your photos and show your grandmother how much good time you're having down at FI Boca. But the reason why that company exists is it is a data collection machine. It didn't start out that way, but that's what it has become, and that's why it exists today. And that's why other platforms get built in the hopes that they can become that next 
crazy data aggregator that other companies can tap into. And it's so cross-platform as well. Like, so I'm working on a story for Warders at the moment about the Stevens Institute of Technology. It's based in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I haven't searched for anything about Stevens apart from on my work computer. Not on my phone, not on my iPad, not on my home computer, nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Yet when I go on my home computer and go on my Facebook, I see adverts for Stevens Institute of Technology. Because yeah. I'm logged into Facebook while I'm searching for it or like LinkedIn and that kind of thing. Yep. So it's so easy to suddenly be uh, sold, I guess, to a certain extent. And I mean, it's kind of weird for us because we're journalists, right? So, I mean, uh, I remember, I'll never forget, actually, when I moved up to London, I was working in a bar, and uh, one of the barmen just typed my name into a search engine. He goes, wow, you flag up hard. And I kind of looked at it, and it was all my articles, that 10 pages of search results came up and that kind of thing. And there's yeah. creepy little websites like Muckrack that build profiles of you without you actually doing it, saying Anthony Malakian has worked at, you know, the Journal News and everything else and that kind of thing. But for ordinary people, that's easy to do as well. Like, you know, especially in the States where certain records are made public and this whole Ancestry.com thing's going on. Like, you can log onto websites, put in someone's name, it'll tell you where they live and sort of their mother, their father, their aunt, their uncle, their cousin, that kind of yeah. shit. And it's just like, if that stuff's out there without your consent, like, why are you giving your consent to do this in the first place? Well, it's, and it's yeah. like all these conversations, should I delete my Facebook account now? That's a fine question to ask, and that's something you should ask. doesn't matter. If the answer isn't also, I should delete my Twitter, mm-hmm. my Instagram, all these other things, then you're not paying attention to what the story is actually about. Exactly. You're just, you're, you're doing this knee-jerk, prisoner-of-the-moment thing, I hate Facebook, Rah. But no, Instagram's doing the same damn thing, man. Well, there was an article in The Guardian today, so the comment is pretty pisses me off as well, like that stupid platform, where like they, uh, some Guardian columnist said, I've deleted my Facebook account because of this, and here's why you should too. You know, in the fact that it doesn't even matter, because when you delete your Facebook account, Facebook still has the rights to all your photos, oh. all your information. Your account actually doesn't get deleted, it just goes dormant, and yep. you can't remove it from the service, because you've signed an agreement in that... 600 page uh, EULA that you didn't read when you signed up, you yeah. know, just saying that it has. Um, I think it's actually some horrible, like, my wife's a lawyer and she was telling me the other day about the kind of stuff you sign up for. Like, it can use your image and marketing and branding without your consent, mm-hmm. it can use your name, it can use your profile, um, it doesn't have to give you a, a red cent for it, you know, yeah. yeah. And it doesn't have to give it up ever, it's in perpetuity, like, well, for like a hundred years, or whatever, yeah. your, your natural life, essentially. Um, and it, there does need to be, I think, an honest conversation about how much. We are sleepwalking into an age where there is no privacy anymore. Yeah, and that's why GDPR is causing such consternation among people because even like PR agencies are asking me, so if, you know, you you've read about this. Uh, what does this mean for our kind of marketing list? And I keep saying something like, well, you know, it's mostly aimed at the unscrupulous actors who will scrape information from Facebook accounts and that kind of thing, but. It applies to everyone, and it should. Like the European Union, uh, I don't often give them credit for stuff, but they're actually starting a conversation now about what does privacy mean in a digital age? What does your right to be forgotten mean in a digital age? Do you have a right to be forgotten? Do you have data privacy? Yeah. And it's an interesting question. It's one that we need to answer as well. Otherwise, and I think it's coming to a, a critical point now where people are starting to realize how much power we've given away to people like, not Mark Zuckerberg personally, but Facebook to Twitter. Yeah. You're just taking your information and just flog it. I mean, it's the yeah. relating it back to capital markets. It's like the whole kind of exchange uh, market data things. Like yeah. you know, we create this data and then you sell it back to us. Like yeah. you, know you don't pay to be on Facebook. It's a free account set up. Yeah. The way you pay is with your information. That's hey, what it is. And so you're selling your information. You gotta be cool with that. That the, you're there's no monetary transaction here. You're just giving up your data. Yeah. You're giving up your privacy. 
And so don't be foolish about this. If you're on Snapchat, you're doing the same thing. If you're on Twitter, it's the same thing. If you're on any of these, and it's honest conversations that you need to have internally and then certainly at a government level, especially as drones become more and more of a thing, internet of technology. I mean, Amazon, I think that Echoes, they say now, are in about 20% of homes in America. Mm. Microphones connected to Amazon are in your home. I have a Google Home. These are things that, you know, we are things, increasingly... Things are listening to you yeah, in your home. All the time. And I mean, like I remember a while back when I was at Dow Jones, I was doing a story on um, on surveillance, and uh, I wanted to use a stat about how many CCTV cameras are in central London or in the UK. It's the most surveyed nation in the world, but it's yeah. 14 million or something. So you get photographed 10 to 20 times a day, depending on what you do. I remember just, like, double-checking this with the... Uh, I think it was the Office of Public Information or something. They just laughed and went, that's what you're concerned about? Like, I mean, wow, man. Like, <laughs> it's way worse than that when you look at the internet. Yeah. Um, but look, I mean, just like Eggs is Eggs, just like Chelsea, Barcelona and Boca, just like every Star Trek movie with an odd number is crap. Like, there is no such thing as a free lunch, you know? It's, um, and you're right, you know, you're not paying any money for Facebook. You're paying with the currency, which arguably is worth far more than oh, any Bitcoin, any dollar, anything else, which is... Sure. It's who you are, and we all exist in a digital world these days. Like uh, to the point where you know, if you get cloned online, your personal information gets stolen. There's very little you can actually do. Even I mean, especially today with kind of the ability of people to put your face on videos and that kind of thing yeah. and mimic your actions and that kind of stuff. There's very little you can do to prove that it isn't you. So, and I think that parents also start to should. Be much more cognizant of how much they share of their kids, who, especially the young kids, who have no say in this. That are you're giving up that kid's privacy, God, yeah. this right to a privacy, and then you're teaching them that this is okay mm. at a very young age. These are things that you really should be thinking about. Of you know, be all these cute pictures that you're sharing with your family. You're sharing that with Facebook. You're not just sharing Facebook, it with your family. Yeah. You are sharing that with Facebook. Well, I mean, I've had friends who. I mean, uh, a few of my friends' kids have severe medical problems. God bless them, but. And they found that um, some, even though his Facebook profile was locked down, somebody somewhere had started a meme uh, saying, oh, well, let's try and start a prayer chain for my child. Uh, if it gets 500,000 likes, God will listen, that kind of thing. It was a picture of their kid that yeah. they taken and put on there. And, like, yeah, I've got friends who just, for some batshit crazy reason, decide that they want to create a Facebook profile for their newborn child. Yeah. And post all these, like, photos of them in the bath and, and like, so, yeah. you know... Um, running around these the embarrassing photos anything. that were just in photo albums just now in albums, are yeah. in everyone's hands, and exactly. the creepo that's now you know the pedophile that's out there now has pictures of your kid. Think about that; they're there forever. Yeah. That's the thing. You can't get rid of them. Yeah. Um, even if you delete the Facebook account and scrub as much as you can, like um, you know, my sister, also an actress, found out just how hard it is to change your online presence. When I think she actually had to hire a PR company to kind of cultivate her. Um, her Google hits in the first few pages uh, to try and bump embarrassing old films down off of the sure, sure. Very, very difficult to do. Um, and these poor kids now who are growing up in a world where they've already surrendered that, kind yeah. of like to, but not through their own volition. It's through their and then you grow up thinking that's perfectly fine, that's yeah. perfectly okay because my mom and dad were sharing all my life moments yeah. on this sphere. So that's just naturally what you do. You give away your privacy. But And even stuff like, even if you don't post on Facebook, you post on WhatsApp. Facebook owns WhatsApp, <laughs> that kind of yeah. thing. It's, and Facebook owns Instagram, and all this stuff. And like you know, some it's always owned by someone. It's just not sensible to yeah. go about doing that. Yeah. And I'm not saying you get rid of it. Just don't be naive about it. Don't yeah. like the, the the shock and the horror that people say after they saw it. It's like 
you didn't know that this was how how naive are you right now that you that this is shocking to you so uh, yeah just I, take a page out of Clinton's book start a private email server get a family that exactly. all uh, use this together <laughs> and then um, Bob's your uncle you know you avoid Mark Zuckerberg's long reach but, <laughs> all right well James is now back here and in winter in New York, first day of spring and snowed or whatever it was. Yeah, beautiful. I was digging my car at two feet of snow today. That's good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we'll be back next week. Not sure what we're going to talk about. We'll wait to see what news comes out. Um, we will be uh, putting out the Women in Technology and Data Award write ups very soon. Yep. And, and uh, features as well and everything else. So, yeah. yeah. And so, otherwise, we're cultivating new ideas, and uh, if you're interested in chatting with us for the podcast, reach out to either myself or to James, and we can talk about some topics to discuss. Crime-fighting robots, actually. If anybody uh, has any insight into using AI bots for surveillance, I'm doing a piece on that soon, so get in touch. I thought you were being a facetious. <laughs> it was actually a pitch for PR, he said uh, he had that as the the lead and I was just like I can't say no to this I'm going to do this I'm playing robots alright there you go we'll leave it at that have a good weekend everybody we'll see you next week see you later